currently. Well, I shared at the beach too. And since the beach, I didn't leave worship at the beach. And since the beach in here, I've led worship. So I don't know if I'm just like ready to let it all out or tired or what's going on in my head. So hopefully I communicate well what I'm trying to say. But we have a worship night next week. And um, in the past month, a story has come up quite a few times that I don't really share a lot. Um, it's just a story about my relationship with God and kind of how I really first got changed for good. And since I've shared it a couple times, and I don't, I just really don't share it that often, I thought, you know, maybe it would be cool to share it with you guys as we go into next week. It's good to see you too. Are you in from out of town? Is that what I heard? Yeah, so good to see you. Sorry. <laughs> this, is, this is what I was talking about. I'm like, I'm not sure where my brain is. Um, so anyway, yeah, I just thought it would be cool to share this with you so that we could go into next week's worship night even closer in heart. So um, grew up in a Christian home. Um, it was a hard season for my family in high school, but I was a believer. I kind of understood the cross. I understood it was a forgiveness of my sins. Um, and I felt like I was doing good. It's just, you know, living life. It was fine. And then um, three days after my 17th birthday, I was home alone. My parents were both out of town. And chaplain came to the door. Um, my brother served in the military, and she let me know reluctantly because the parent wasn't there that he had passed away the night before in his sleep. And we knew he had epilepsy, um, but he had had what they said a grand mal seizure in the middle of the night and didn't survive it. And, um, you know, in that time, I had three siblings, and he was the closest in personality, and we just thought and, and just operated in life so similarly. And so within kind of the chaos and what was happening in my family's life, I thought, like, oh, God, like, why did the one person that gets it, like, gets me, like, why is he gone, you know? And to go so far as I think I asked the question, why, God, did you take him, to be honest? And um, it was hard. I was really sad. I was really brokenhearted. And five months of that went past, and it happened to be the same time that the Passion of the Christ was coming out. And um, with a very small, tiny whisper of a yes in my heart, I went, and I um, grew up in a small, very, very Christian town, so of course the whole town was going to see it. It was like opening weekend, so I waited in line for two hours, and the entire time in my heart, I just was like, God, like you, get, you, just, like, you have to show up or I'm out. It's just like too much pain, and I feel abandoned and alone, and with all the other circumstances that were happening in my life and with my family, um, I just, I didn't see a way forward. And so, um, of course, you know, seeing this storyline of Jesus in front of me in a cinematic way wrecked me. I was just total mess. Um, but it was as I was leaving the theater that I feel like God really, like, touched me in a way that changed me forever. I walked past a dad who put on his shoulders what looked like his five-year-old daughter and said, have I told you, honey, how much I love you? And I knew that was God telling me in that moment how much he loved me. And I got to my car, and I was weeping. I was like, joked about this earlier. What did I say? I was like a fire hose of tears coming out of my eyes because I was just, I, I just was so wrapped, a 17-year-old kid wrapped up in the love of God. And I understood the forgiveness of my sins through the cross, but I didn't understand the part where it's like, God so loved the world. And my daughter and husband just walked in, so of course I'm going to get distracted now. Hi. Um, so anyway, I got the love part. And yeah, I, I can't say that, you know, the questions were ever answered, but the conversation in my heart changed from, from why to, God, you love me so much. Like, it just was a new narrative in my heart, and you're in me, with me in the pain, you're with me in the grief, you're sad too, you're literally, like, sitting in this trench with me, holding me together, 
And I just, I didn't get the love part of the cross. I got the forgiveness, but I didn't get the love. And I told my age last service, I'm not going to do it because YouTube and people will see. No, I'll tell you, I'm 36. So that was 20 years ago. So I haven't really looked back since. And that's really marked me. And I wasn't really in a mountaintop experience, of course. Um, I was in a really low valley, like a seriously sad low valley. And and as I've been praying about this worship night, I just want to encourage all of us, if you're not in a mountaintop season with God, if you're questioning, if you're hurt, if you were where I was, I still want to invite you to come and duke it out with God. And he can handle it. He just wants to be with us. He just wants to be with you. And so still come. If you are on a mountaintop season with God, come so that those of us that aren't can feel your faith in the room. And lastly, if you don't come, that's okay, because it's not about who comes or who doesn't come. We're not about that. We are just wanting to gather together and worship and see what God can do. But I think the one thing I want to challenge all of us is what I was challenged with as a 17-year-old girl was what I let God put me on his shoulders and let him just tell me how much he loves me. And so that's what I want to leave you guys with. Come, don't come. I would love for you to come. But if you come, let God be that to you wherever you are. So it's Thursday night at the pedophile's home, 7 to 7.30, we'll greet each other, we'll hang out a little bit, um, 7.30 to 8.30, we will worship, pray, take communion together, and then we'll end at 8.30 pretty sharply. So, thanks guys. Thanks for listening. All right, no, go hug your baby. Wow, Amanda, we love you so much, and she's, she's an anointed worship leader. If you just allow Amanda to lead you, She'll take, she'll take us to places that are surprising, and now it's so great to hear that story that it's born out of really knowing that she is loved by God. That's, that's the start, is how can we love other people if we haven't yet let God love us? So I'm going to pray for Taylor, and uh, I'm going to pray for us too. Let's, let's, let's just open up our hearts. Father... Uh, we thank you for um, your communication with us and that you chose um, to communicate primarily through Jesus, through his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection. And his followers put um, these, um, these stories together, the scriptures, and we're so grateful for it. We pray you give Taylor real freedom um, to speak from his heart, from the text. And God, I pray for each of us that you would give us open hearts, open ears, to be engaged listeners, anticipating that your Holy Spirit is going to speak to each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate you. Um, I was so wrapped up in Amanda's story, I like, <laughs> like forgot all of a sudden, like, oh, yeah, I got to teach. Um, so now I'm getting back into it. Um, but yeah, just to, I, I, there's such a, a sweet um, move of God happening within our community uh, through these 21 days of prayer, um, things happening outside of that or outside of any structure or plan, and, and what we're really anticipating this upcoming week with uh, this prayer room on Tuesday and our worship night on, on Thursday night, where we're wanting to stoke hunger for God in our church. Um, we really believe that God moves where God's wanted, and we want to be a people that stoke deeper hunger for God amongst us. That's why we're doing the 21 days of prayer. That's why we're creating the prayer room on Tuesday. Uh, that's why we're worshiping. And then there's, we know there's so many other wonderful things happening in our own individual lives and callings and space that doesn't have anything to do with a plan or an organization. But um, we're wanting to be a people who are going deeper in our hunger for the Lord. And that's what this is all about. We've been in a series uh, in the book of Elijah 
um, for the last several weeks. Um, I'm going to continue on with that. So we're going to be in Elijah chapter uh, 18. You guys can uh, turn there um, if you want to pull that up on your phone or you got your own Bible um, hard copy that you want to read along with. I'm going to read verses 17 and 18. That's where we're going to um, look, look, zoom in on this one specific interaction between Elijah and King Ahab, and we're going to let God speak to us through that. So I'm going to read 1 Kings chapter 18 uh, from 17 to 18. And uh, I'll pray, ask the Spirit of God to speak to us through his word, uh, invite us to each just kind of come before God, asking God to speak, and then uh, we'll see what God has to say. So, 1 Kings, chapter 18, verses 17 to 18. Elijah's coming to Ahab. Uh, the context is there's been a drought for three years that Elijah, um, speaking on behalf of the Lord, predicted would happen as a wake-up call to his people who've kind of gone astray, particularly King Ahab who's gone astray. And uh, then here's where we pick it up. So Elijah comes to Ahab. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Two verses. It's God's word for us this morning, written by a human author in their own language and context and style, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. And every time we open up God's word, he has something to say to us. So let's pray right now and ask that the Spirit of God would speak to us. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, um, we thank you that you love us. We love you too, or at least we want to. And uh, we pray, God, that you would uh, teach us right now. Um, open up our hearts as, as we open up your word. Um, thank you that you speak to us through your word. It's living and active. And we pray that you give us open hearts to receive. Right now, just in the quiet of your own heart, um, I'm going to invite each of us in whatever words make sense to you, just to ask God to speak right now. Um, so just, you know, we'll have a moment of quiet and just um, ask God, God, would you, would you speak to me? And we pray that you would speak, Lord. And we pray that you give us not just information in our heads, but transformation in our hearts, that we become the kind of women and men that you always made us to be. And thank you that it's all possible because of Jesus, because you give us grace, that it's safe to bring everything into the light with you, because uh, we know where we stand with you because of your grace, not because of our works. And so uh, we pray for that. And Holy Spirit, would you move? We ask, come Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what would you guess that, according to the research, is the number one identifiable difference between leaders who have been pretty successful versus leaders who have been really successful? There's been a, a, ton, a ton of research done on this topic looking at um, different, different kind of situa leadership situations, uh, how organizations have done, and the way that leadership factors into how those organizations have done, and they've, one of the things that's been looked at is what's different between a leader of an organization that does pretty well, is fine, and leaders that really, of, of organizations that really innovate, that if it's a business, really increase their market share, or that really uh, take on new ground, or that really do something game-changing, what, what would you guess is the number one identifiable difference between leaders of pretty good organizations, leaders who've done pretty good, and leaders who've done really, really good, leaders of really sharp organizations. What's that? Yeah, yeah that's true. There's a, lot of There's a lot of sorts of factors, yes. And you would know. <laughs> yes. 
I'll tell, so maybe, maybe I'll rephrase. One key identifiable, but in, in, some, in some findings, it's the, it's the top. But, uh, Overcoming well, that's really, yes, really important. The number one, uh, one I have in mind is, <laughs> what this sermon is about is, <laughs> is humility. Humility. So, for example, a uh, very famous book on organizational leadership, Good to Great, kind of the standard book that people throw at leaders as they're learning how to lead. Uh, one of the, the, the premise of the book is Jim Collins, who's the, the head researcher uh, uh, summarizing the findings in the book, is looking at the difference between organizations that stayed kind of average amongst their field versus organizations that, that rose to the top, went from average to rising to the top. And from a leadership perspective, the, the top kind of identifiable feature of leaders of these organizations is humility. So here's how he puts it in Good to Great. He says, in contrast to the very eye-centric style of comparison leaders of companies that stayed mediocre, we were struck by how, good, uh, how the good to great leaders didn't talk about themselves. It wasn't just false modesty. Those who worked with or wrote about the good to great leaders continually used words like quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, gracious, mild-mannered, self-effacing, understated, did not believe his or her own clippings, and so forth. The top difference that they identified in their research for, the, for what made the leaders who led organizations that made a jump to greatness was humility. Humility is powerful. It's powerful in leadership. It's powerful in our interpersonal relationships. It's powerful in our relationship with God and ourselves, as we're going to see here in a moment. There's something powerful about humility. And as those who've been following the story of Elijah, if you're familiar with the story of Scripture at all, this should not come as a surprise. Because when you take a look at the narrative of Scripture that's been building up to this point in the story of Scripture, not even going beyond the story of Scripture, if, we just, if I had started right now with Genesis chapter 1 and read all the way up to 1 Kings 18, which I wouldn't do to you because I love you and I care about your sweet little attention span, um, my attention span, uh, couldn't possibly do that in one sitting. However, um, if we were to do that, what we would see over and over and over again is this theme that keeps coming up. Because the narrative of scripture is a story primarily about God, primarily about God, who God is and his redemptive love for us that he's working out in his people up to this point of the story and ultimately culminates in Jesus. But from the human side of things, from the human response to God, there's a theme that comes up over and over and over again. It's the theme that in the New Testament, the writer, First uh, Peter, uh, in First Peter 4, 6, and James in James 5, quoting an Old Testament proverb, sum it up perfectly. Sum it up like this, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it's a theme that comes up over and over and over again. Starting in the very opening of uh, the, the opening sections of the, the biblical narrative, we see that time and time again, God tends to choose the younger sons to work through the younger sons instead of through the older sons. And this is in a culture uh, where being the firstborn son 
had, was everything for the family honor, the family lineage, for receiving an inheritance. Like the firstborn son was the son of the family, the, the one to carry on the family. And yet God subverts that and over and over and over again chooses to work through the younger son, chooses to work through not the one that the, the, the high and lifted up, but through the humble. Uh, in in the, the narrative of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, God must say five billion times. Not actually possible for him to say five billion times in that span. But he says it over and over and over again. I haven't chose you because of anything about you. Like go read the book of Deuteronomy, and it comes up over and over and over again where God says, I didn't choose you because of you. I didn't choose you because you were a great nation. I didn't choose you because of your moral goodness. I didn't choose you because of your righteousness. I didn't choose you because you were the right sort of people. I didn't choose you because you were some big asset. I chose you because I love you. I chose you because of something about me, my graciousness, my unfailing love for my people. God chose, God shows over and over again. He, gives, he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. At these key moments of the story, and, and scripture really double clicks and highlights on this, that in a society that is deeply patriarchal and very hierarchical in terms of its social, social structuring, there's some key moments that God chooses to use through women of particularly low social status. He chooses to, that, chooses to work through a person who in that society would have been the least likely person that, that you would think would be the hero of the story, the, the person that God would work out his redemptive plan through. And yet there's these key moments of the story where God chooses to use someone who in those cultural terms would have been the lowly. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And even in the overarching narrative where Elijah takes place, so Elijah is part of this kind of, um, the story of Elijah is part of kind of a, a unit of scripture that's kind of the, the story of God's working through his people, Israel. And so there's there's um, first and second Samuel are kind of like a unit, one narrative unit, and then you've got first and second kings that form a narrative unit, but they go together. They all kind of flow seamlessly as one story. And so in first Samuel, where it begins, the whole story that the book of Elijah takes place in, the unfolding story that it takes place in, uh, it is framed through this one story, this little the zoomed-in microcosm story that kind of sets the themes for the rest of the narrative. And the beginning of the book is a woman named Hannah who's unable to have children. And in that society, being a woman unable to have children is, is social death. It's, it, it, it brings you to the lowest of status. And so here's, here's this unlikely hero, an, a surprising person that God would work through, and she's crying out to the Lord. In fact, she's crying out to the Lord so passionately, God, I'm, so, I'm, I'm, I'm desperate for you, that the priest thinks she's drunk. Like, he's like, what is this, what is this drunk lady doing, like, in my temple? And so she's, she's crying out to the Lord, and God says, this lowly person, this, this is my kind of person. This is the kind of person that I'm going to work out this story of redemption through. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And now we see it played in a small episode here in the life of Ahab as the, the prophet of God, Elijah, has confronted him because of his rebellion. And his response to Elijah, to Elijah's accountability, is anything but humility. In his pride, he's blame-shifting. What does he say? He's, he's the reason that God is doing this wake-up call to Israel by bringing this drought to shake them out of their rebellion against God. And, um, and it's the consequence of, of Ahab's sin. And Ahab sees Elijah, the one holding him accountable, and he says, Elijah, you troubler of Israel. You're the one. You, you're, this, this isn't a consequence. of This, isn't my, this is you. 
and out of his wounded pride, he's blame-shifting. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And, and I just, I chuckle at Elijah's response, because basically it's a churched-up version of I'm rubber, you are glue, whatever you say, it bounces off of me and sticks to you. Like, he's just like, <laughs> no, you. Like, you're the troubler. Um, and it's just like, it's just, you know, you could read this as two kids bickering on, you know, the playground. But... Um, the, the, point, the point that we see here is this theme that comes over and over again, played out again. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so I think as we are reading through the narrative and we see this play over and over again, and it's like God wants our antennas to be raised extra sensitive as these things, themes come over and over again, that we're supposed to look for this. It's happened enough now that we're supposed to look for this theme coming out over and over again. My kind of person, God says, is humbly receptive to me, not stuck in their pride, not set defensively in their pride, but humbly open to me. So we're supposed to see this, and as we come to the story and we see it play out again, the questions we have to ask ourselves are, okay, so what does it even mean to be prideful or humble? What, what do pride and what, is, what does scripture show us about what pride and humility actually are? And how can we actually live with humble receptiveness to God? How can we have this open posture to God that we see him seeking out and fostering in his people and calling out for us? What, is, what are pride and humility? And how do we even get to humility in the first place. And so that's how we'll spend the rest of our time uh, as we look at this small episode, this small exchange between Elijah and King Ahab, we're gonna see the sneaky danger of pride, the surprising freedom of humility, and the one thing that can really change our hearts. Really not just give us more humble virtue, but actually give us a humble heart over a lifetime. We'll begin by the sneaky danger of pride. See, um, you know, if, if, if we look at what's happening here in the life of, of Ahab and even zoom out to these constant examples over and over again of God opposing the proud but giving grace to the humble, what I think we see is that pride is what happens when we base our deepest source of identity on something about us. Pride is what happens when we place our deepest source of identity on something about us, my goodness, my religious devotion, my personality, my influence, my gifts, my relational capacity, anything about us. Pride is what happens when we base our deepest source of identity on something about us. And that's not to say we shouldn't celebrate the good things about ourselves. Oh my gosh, we should celebrate the good, the good ways that God has made us. But when our deepest source, source of identity, our truest, our, our, the thing that we think is truest about us has something to do with us, the result is pride. Practically, this means that pride expresses itself, or maybe a better way of saying that is the symptoms of pride are much more varied than we might think. You know, when we typically think of pride, if we were just take a straw poll of like, what is pride? I think words that would come up to, you know, first knee-jerk reaction words would be things like arrogant or boastful or defensive, uh, all of the three of which are, um, yes, very much uh, examples of pride. Um, and yet, I think pride is much sneakier than that. And we see in scripture that I think pride is much sneakier than that. Because wounded pride, in particular, can come out in all kinds of different ways that aren't necessarily boastfulness, aren't necessarily defensiveness, aren't necessarily arrogance. In fact, I think because pride 
is rooted in forming our truest sense of self on something about ourselves, when that thing about our, when a, a flaw surfaces about that thing in which we think is the truest thing about us, we can respond in pride in all kinds of different ways. And I would argue that self-pity and self-shame are just as much symptoms of pride as arrogance and boastfulness. Because wounded pride, when, when we're forming our identity on something, our truest sense of identity on something about ourselves, wounded pride can go dark on ourselves. It can look like self-pity. It can look like punishing yourself and shaming yourself. But they're all symptoms of this root of forming our identity on something, our deepest sense of identity on something about us. I think we see pride most exposed when we're confronted with our flaws. And that's another sneaky thing about pride is it can be latent um, in most of life, un un unexposed in most of life, but it, it comes out when our flaws get exposed, when someone gives us some constructive feedback or when we've done something that we ought not to have done or regret doing out in the open and people can see it, or when we're confronted even with our own ourselves, we're, we're confronted in our own conscience of something that we ought not to have done. When our flaws get exposed, when we, when, when we sin, uh, that's when we see pride come out. And so let's think of a couple ways that pride comes out in the midst uh, of our flaws being exposed, because I think that's what's going to help us see how sneaky this really is, how dangerous it can be, and helping and identifying it can help us get to the sweet spot where God wants to take us. So I think this is an inexhaustive list, and we could brainstorm others, and so don't, don't get hung up just on this, but think about what happens when your deepest sense of identity is in something about yourself, and then you fail in that thing. Fail in, in a way that touches that, that source of identity. Now, pride is exposed. One way that, we, that pride gets exposed in that is blame shifting. We see that here in, uh, in the life of Ahab, where... Ahab is confronted with, his, confronted with his sin, and in his wounded pride, his response is not to take ownership and repent. His response is to shift the blame. It's not, the problem isn't me, Elijah. The problem is you. You're the problem. You are the troubler of Israel, Israel Elijah. It's not me. It's you. So frequently we'll blame shift onto another person. Frequently the person that's holding us accountable. They're the problem. Or we blame other people of doing the very thing that that we're doing as a way of getting the responsibility off of us and keeping our, our own culpability at arm's distance. So we'll blame shift. We also blame shift on circumstances. Now, of course, there, there are circumstances that are painful and difficult and can be, can be triggering to unhealthy or, or sinful behavior. But we blame our circumstances rather than taking personal responsibility. So it's not me, I, it's, it's not my fault I said that harsh, un, un, unkind thing. It was my stress. And sure, when we're stressed, we do things that we, were, we later, we often do things we later regret doing. But also, we made, we, we made a choice for which we need to take ownership, but we, can, we, blame shift, we frequently blame shift on other circumstances when our pride is wounded. So, we blame shift. We see that here in Ahab. Uh, another, uh, another common one is downplaying. Downplaying the, the, import, the, the severity of, of something that we've done. So I convince my, so if, if blame shifting is putting blame on something or someone else, um, 
because it's an identity issue and we don't think that we could be acceptable before God or acceptable to ourselves if we're really to blame, if, if the responsibility really lies on us, therefore defense tactic and wounded pride, put it on something else. Downplaying is convincing myself that my sin is not that big of a deal, trying to convince others that my sin is not that big of a deal because deep down I don't think God would accept me and I don't think I could be acceptable to myself if my sin really were that big of a deal, if I really had done something truly hurtful, if I really had said something that I shouldn't have said, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I'll tell you, personally, I used to think that downplaying was not a particular issue for me, um, and in, in various relationships and seasons, I'd been able to receive um, accountability and constructive feedback with what looked like graciousness. But over the last couple of years, I've begun to see that this actually is a pretty big deal for me. And it's come in my, my marriage to my wife, Becca, where my response to her when she brings things up to me is very different than when other people bring up my flaws or expose my failures. And the reason I'm able to respond graciously to some other people in my life is because when they bring stuff up, it doesn't poke at my identity nearly as much as when Becca does. Because Becca really sees me. And Becca really knows me. And I really care what Becca thinks of me. And so when she, when she brings something up, I, I, it exposes pride in me in a way that, uh, that doesn't in other people or that I can hide at least in other people and self, have enough self-control to seem like I'm responding graciously even though that might not be actually what's going on in my heart. And so over the last few years, I've realized actually while I thought downplaying was not a particular, was not a, a particular way that pride came out in me, it actually is. I've just, been under, I've just had a lot of self-control in some other areas of my, in other relationships in my life. And, and Becca, you know, I wouldn't have chosen this kind of growing and learning process. But my, in my marriage with Becca, she's exposed this in me for the good. So we downplay. We also hide. And this, historically in my life, this has been, this has been the big one. Um, it's, hi, hiding would be, you know, in response to our sin, usually confronted with ourselves before other people see it or before we think other people see it. We tell no one. We go through elaborate measures to cover it up. We maybe even avoid God for a little while because we're kind of like trying to put a little distance between us and God because we got a flawed view of God's character and so we're letting him quote-unquote cool down. Totally unnecessary. The gospel tells us that. But um, so we hide and the root of it is we don't, we don't think that God will really accept us and we don't think we could really be acceptable for ourselves if our sin really is in the open. If it's, it, we, we're avoiding it, essentially. It's, avo- it's an avoidance tactic. And this has been something that has come up in at several instances of my life. Um, you know, w- case in point, uh, when I was in college, one summer I worked at a little, uh, was, it was uh, serving with a, as a volunteer with a, a ministry and I was uh, during the day, uh, a couple days a week working for a, uh, like a beach grill, kind of like Perry's down here, uh, down here on the Strand. And uh, so I was kind of like a combination server fry cook at this, at this beach grill. Very unqualified to do it, by the way. Um, but um, so uh, in, the, in the stock room uh, of this beach grill, there was a chicken suit that at previous uh, summer seasons for the beach grill, they had used in order to promote, you know, the fried chicken or whatever, you know, and someone would dance out on the, on the strand, uh, or it was a boardwalk at, the, at, these, at this town. Um, uh, and, you know, lure customers in to eat the not very good fried chicken. And um, 
And I didn't think that they had been using it, that they had been using it this summer season. So unbeknownst to me, my, my boss actually had hired someone to come into the night shifts and, um, and use a chicken suit. Someone, the, the ministry I was serving with was uh, going to do the scavenger hunt for, where students had to find people that were like dressed up in costume or incognito uh, around the beach, around the, around the boardwalk, and to find these people is like this you know, fun, silly event. And uh, one of the staff people asked me if uh, he could use the chicken suit as part of his costume. And I thought, sure, no one's using it. I didn't think to ask my boss. Very dumb 20-year-old kid mistake to make. And so, uh, but, so I'd grab the chicken suit, let the guy use it, and unbeknownst to me, my boss had hired someone to use it. So, uh, and in, in the course of the couple-day span where I had the chicken suit, uh, this person that, sh that she had hired um, had a, a dispute with her about how much he was going to be paid. And so very dramatically, he quit before he even started. And she thought that out of spite, he had come into the stockroom and stolen the chicken suit to get back at her for not paying him enough. And he was there for the summer on a temporary work visa from Eastern Europe. And so uh, she called the police because she thought he had sold the chicken suit. And the police had brought him in. And he was in very real danger of being deported for this, of losing his temporary work visa for supposedly, allegedly breaking into the stockroom and in spite stealing the chicken suit. I don't know where she got the story from, by the way. I was like, yeah, I'll show you. I'll steal the chicken suit. But this is what was going on. I find out about it. I get the chicken suit. I run to the stockroom and I confess and take ownership of my sin. No, I did not. I, I hid it behind a box in the back of a stockroom. <laughs> left without anybody seeing me, and called my boss and said, hey, uh, you know, I heard this whole thing going on with Sergey, uh, and the chicken suit was missing. You know, the other day, I was actually back in the stockroom, and I'm pretty sure I saw it in a corner, like, tucked away in the back. You should go check to see if the chicken suit is back there. And she was like, oh, that's really weird, but okay. And went back there, and I hid. I had made a mistake. I had lied to my boss. I had, you know, I had, I had, I had taken something from her without permission. And rather than taking ownership of it, I hid. And lo and behold, I eventually got caught for it because she started pressing me on how I knew where the chicken suit was. And it was like, uh, it's really pretty clear I'm lying now, so I, should, I guess I need to own up. The point is, one of the strategies that we, that, are, that we employ in our wounded pride, one of the ways our wounded pride gets exposed, is in hiding. And then finally, I think another really common one that, I, again, I've seen in my life and I see as a pastor in people's lives frequently is paying. Is, is because our identity is rooted in something about us and a flaw gets exposed in that thing about us, we've done something we ought not to have done, we make ourselves pay. We try to make up for it by overperforming or by shaming ourselves and we say, I, it's rooted even if we couldn't have put our finger on it in this, this idea that I don't think God will really accept me, I don't think I'm really acceptable to myself unless I punish myself or unless I somehow make up for it. And so while that might not look like pride because we assume that pride only looks like boastfulness, it's actually wounded pride weaponizing down against itself. It's self-pitying, it's self-shaming, it's trying to make ourselves pay. Point is, pride is what happens when we build our deepest sense of identity in something about what I can do, something that I bring to the table. And it gets exposed when that thing gets revealed to be insufficient in some way, when we, when, when we fail in some way. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The, the, the danger of pride is not just that it's sneaky because it can take lots of different forms, but because it's self-defensive, 
in very nature, it prevents us from openly receiving what God wants to give us, which is his lavish grace. And so that's where we begin to see now the surprising freedom of humility. Because Ahab, his particular symptom of pride is blame shifting, wounded pride, blame shifting. And that's the focus on our episode of scripture here. It's, it's an example of pride, not one of humility, but it's not hard to connect the dots then to what humility would look like, to what humility would be by way of contrast. Because King Ahab had a hardness of heart toward God and his pride. And we re- when we relate to God and when we relate to ourselves based on something about us, something that we can do, something we bring to the table, it, it creates eventually a hardness of heart, however subtle that we call pride. But when we relate to God and to ourselves based on God, based on his unconditional love for us, it creates a deep security even in our flaws and a receptive openness to him. And that's what we call humility. Because when the truest thing about me, when the most important thing about me isn't something that I bring to the table, it's about the unconditional love of God, something that surpasses and supersedes and even flies in the face of my my flaws, that gives me a freedom to face the good, the bad, and the ugly without it, without it bringing any question to my value before God, to my acceptance before God, to my ability to love myself. It creates an openness and a receptivity to the grace of God. That's humility. Because true humility is what happens when we base our deepest source of identity on God as he really is and on his unconditional love for us. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And he loves humility, not because he's just got kicks for one particular virtue or something like that, but because it's humility, a humble receptiveness towards God that then translates to a humble receptiveness towards ourselves and then translates into a humble receptiveness towards others that opens us up, gives us the posture to receive what he wants to give us, which is his grace. There is freedom in humility. Freedom from enslavement to insecure sources of identity and therefore freedom of of free openness to receive God's grace. Receive God's grace even in our flaws. Take ownership from our flaws without it threatening our identity. Take ownership and receive accountability because it, it doesn't question our value. It doesn't bring into question our value at all. There's an openness and a freedom to humility. So then the question is, how can we actually be humble? Like, how can we actually have this posture of humble receptivity towards God? How can we have this open-handed posture that, 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 that is the sweet spot that God is drawing us into? Well, I think what the story shows us, what the example of Ahab shows us, is that it, it can't be merely knowing about humility. It can't just be head knowledge. See, here's one of the things that happens in the story. Ahab has every piece of information he needs to respond to God. Up to this point in the story, Elijah, the prophet, the man of God, has come to, come to Ahab and said, because, because of your strength from the Lord, God's trying to wake you up. It's not, there's going to be a drought until you turn from your sin. And then it happens, right? For three years, it doesn't rain. So the word of God comes. 
And then it happens just like the Lord says it's going to happen. Ahab has plenty of information to see that God is trying to wake him up. Plenty of information to see that God is revealing himself to him. Immediately after the story is what uh, Todd preached on last week where it's the great showdown at Mount Carmel where the fire of heaven comes down in power onto the sacrifice that, uh, that Elijah lays as kind of like a display of the reality of God. And so clearly displayed is the power of God come down and Ahab still does not repent, still does not humble himself before the Lord. It can't be merely head knowledge. It can't just be knowing how to be humble, although strategies are very helpful in terms of actually living it out. It can't just be even knowing about God, even though that's the place that God is taking us in terms of building our identity. It has to be more than just head knowledge. You know, even in, um, I was thinking about humility, obviously, this last week as I was, was putting together the, the, this, this sermon. And, um, you know, I was reflecting on the probably the best book I've ever read on humility. Fantastic book on humility. It was written by a man who a couple years after writing the book was, at, was dismissed from the ministry that he led because of a long-standing pattern of prideful leadership. So he writes, one of, the best, one of the best books on humility I've ever, I've ever read, and then it's revealed that the entire time, and then there's an ongoing pattern, he's enslaved to pride, and it's coming out in his leadership style, and to the point where he's let go of, le- of leading the ministry he was leading as a result. Todd and I were chatting this last week. He was just reflecting on how several years ago someone recommended a sermon on, a sermon on humility to him, and Todd never got around, got, never got a chance to listen to it, but we were talking about how we're sure, it's a wonder, we're sure it's a wonderful teaching on humility. It was probably a fantastic sermon on humility. That's why the person recommended it, and yet a couple years later after the sermon was given, this this pastor was exposed as being kind of the, the notorious prideful leader of our generation. Like the, he was let, let famously let go from a ministry for prideful leadership. And so head knowledge alone is not enough. We can know all the strategies in the world of how to act humble. And acting humble can be helpful. It can, it can de-escalate conversations. It can, uh, there's many, many wonderful things about knowing strategies. But that's not the same as knowing having a posture, a heart posture of humility before God and before ourselves and with others. And so what is it? Ahab has all the information he needs, and yet he's not humbling himself before God. There's, a, there's an episode in the life of Jesus where Jesus confronts a similar issue in a crowd. In John chapter 6, Jesus has just performed the miracle of the 5,000, 5,000 heads of households, so more than 5,000 people. It's an incredible display of the power of God, and the crowds have come back to him. And Jesus sees in their hearts their true posture towards, towards God. And he tells them, uh, this is in uh, John chapter 6, verse 26. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw a sign. In other words, not because you, not because you see God for who he really is and are now seeking to reorient your deepest sense of self around that God. You're not coming with humble receptivity towards God because you saw who God is. He says, you came, you've come because you ate your fill of loaves. In other words, you don't want me. You want the stuff I can do for you. You're not, you're not actually wanting to reorient your life and your deepest sense of self around this. There's, there's just something you want out of me. And then he goes on to say, then that the way to get unstuck out of that from going just head knowledge to internalized in the heart. As he says, you have to see me as the bread. Me as, he says, I am the bread of life. 
what, what you hunger for in your stomach, you feed with bread. What you hunger for in your soul, you feed with me. I'm the one that, that your soul was made for, that your deepest sense of self was meant to be rooted in. And then he says, in a very incendiary type of teaching in John chapter 6, that turned a lot of people off in the crowd, largely because they misunderstood. But Jesus said, the way that you get that, and remember, he's, think, he's talking about bread. It's, you satisfy your soul on me on the way that you satisfy uh, your hunger on, on bread. I'm the bread for your soul. And he says, the way you actually get it into you, the way that you really see me as the bread, he says, is you, you take it in. You take in my flesh and my blood, and he's alluding to his, his cross and his, uh, his sacrifice on behalf of our sins on the cross. He says, when you, when you eat my flesh and drink my blood, working off this metaphor of bread and hunger, he says, when you take it into yourself, that's when you really see. When you internalize what I've done for you on my cross, in, in the point in the story, what he's going to do for, for them on the cross which of course has parallels to what we're gonna celebrate in a moment in the Lord's Supper. But what he says is, when you see what I've done for you on the cross, when you see my body broken and my blood shed, when you see the self-giving love of God poured out for you, that God the Son became one of us in humility, he humbled himself to become one of us and to take on our sin for which he bore no responsibility, but he takes it, takes it in himself he takes my sin and your sin and he puts it on the, his own back on the cross when we see the God of the universe suffering on our behalf because of his great love for us that he might redeem us to him. That's when we see the kind of love that changes everything. It's like Amanda shared earlier. That's when we see our Father God scooping us up into his arms and saying, have I told you how much I love you? When we see that, that's what helps us to see that he's the one. He's the one that satisfies the hunger of our souls. He's the one that we were meant to build our deepest source of identity in. And over a lifetime, as we internalize it, as we take it in, as we remind ourselves of who we are, remind ourselves of the unconditional love of, us, uh, love of God for us, that's what creates this posture of freedom. Posture of freedom from identifying in something about me that, could potentially, that, that I'm going to fail in at some point. Instead, it's about the love of God. I'm free and open as a result. I'm humble as a result. It's when we see a different kind of king than Ahab. King Ahab, stuck in his own pride, hard-hearted towards God in his own way. But King Jesus, a very different kind of king. King Jesus, humbling himself, like it says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, that Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And when we see that kind of a king, that kind of a king who loves us personally, that's what changes everything. So right now we're gonna, we're gonna close in worship. We're gonna close by taking the Lord's Supper together. So I'm gonna invite the, the band to come up. Because now as we close, we're taking a minute to see that kind of self-giving love of God for us that reframes our sense of self. It reframes where we look for identity. And as it reframes where we look for identity, it reframes how we navigate 
our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationships with others, it creates this posture of humble openness towards God because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So right now, would you guys pray with me? And, uh, and we'll close in worship and in the Lord's Supper together. God, we love you. We're so grateful for your grace. Because of your grace, God, because we see your unconditional love for us in Jesus. We know that that's what creates this posture of humble openness that you're inviting us to. And Lord, uh, we each struggle with pride in our own ways. Some of it um, looks like the stereotype. Sometimes we're defensive or boastful or arrogant. Sometimes we beat ourselves up in self-pity and self-shaming and punish ourselves. Um, But we know, God, that neither are the sweet spot that you've invited us into. We want to have the kind of humble receptivity to you that comes from the freedom of receiving your love. And not just receiving it as the answer to a theological formula or some theory, some Bible factoid we know about, but really receiving it in the depths of our souls, having it be the truest thing about us. So we pray, God, that you would help us, give us those eyes to see. Help us to see your finished work on the cross as proof positive that the God of the universe loves us with self-giving love. So we ask for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we'll continue. Just in this mindset of worship, I'm going to invite you. Let's just be real quiet. Let's just keep it quiet. The worship team's going to play. Invite you to go back and get the elements. There's real bread back there representing the body of Christ and then a cup of juice representing his blood. So if you'll go back and then come back to your seats and I'll guide us through. Jesus gathered his disciples around the night before he was betrayed. He went to the cross and he took a loaf of bread. He lifted it up. He broke it. And he said, this is my body. It's broken. He says, I want you each to take it. And I want you to take it into yourself. As Taylor said, we, we symbolically now take Jesus into us. He said, I am... I'm the true bread that comes down from heaven. And so he invites us to participate in this brokenness, which is for us. So let's partake together.
then after that supper, he took a cup, fruit of the vine, and said, this represents my blood, which is shed for you, for forgiveness of sins. And uh, Amanda said in her story that she was brought to the place of understanding that her sins were forgiven. But even beyond that, that she was deeply loved. And so as we partake together, let us celebrate the fact that in Christ we're forgiven and he loves us. He loves us exactly where we're at in this moment. Let's partake together. Can we all stand together as we finish with worship?
sing it again together. So teach my song to rise to you, Jesus. When temptation humility and confidence saying that we need you we need the breath that you breathe on us that fills our very lungs we need your presence and we need your grace and we need your mercy and we thank you that it is available to us so Jesus let this song run deep into our hearts that we need you but in that need God may we know with all confidence that you meet us right there that there is never a moment where we come to you and you are not meeting us right where we are. So we love you, we thank you that we get to be known and loved by you, Jesus. So we ask that this would go with us through the week as we go on to whatever it is uh, that the week holds, Lord. May our hearts rest in the confidence that you are with us and you are good. In Jesus' name. Bless you guys. Well, we'll see you maybe at prayer or the worship night, um, but it's great to worship with you. We'll see you next week. Oh, if you guys have any trash, if you could just grab your communion cups, help the serve service team.